0: Stand clear of the closing doors, please.
1: In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative story escapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior-Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, professor emeritus calliope de gamowitz and Inquisitor james earl king ii as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality
2: the Casbah, uh, whatever that means, I'm in charge of the mother. I'm in charge of the multiverse. Why are you being such? (laughs) I'm in charge of the multiverse. I eat quasars for lunch. I'm in charge of the multiverse. The big bang and big crunch. I'm in charge of the multiverse. I read the rules you obey. I'm in charge of the multiverse. And I ask why. in a multiverse Bogusheen's the multiverse
3: Judge's Cave by Eric Rosenfield After the world ended, five people holed up in Judge's Cave and started a band. Like the punkers of old, they rechristened themselves, new people for a new post-civilized age. Vincent, Warren, Berger, Rehnquist, and Roberts, the judges played outlandish science fiction hillbilly music. All jangly majors and insistent thumping rhythms that got under your nails and down your throat until you had to dance and stomp and rave to get it out or risk of bursting. People came from miles around, canoeing through the bay that was once downtown New Haven to where the raw cliff face of west rock jutted out over the water like the ragged brow of some angry sea god. In winter they played in fur coats around a bright fire. In summer they stripped down nearly naked. They played every evening at sundown inside the half-ring of torches, flame mingling with the wash of sunset. Took no Sabbath, no vacation. Some said they were mourning for dead lovers, or their dead nation. Some said they'd all snapped at once, like so many others had. People screaming on the roofs of houses, dancing in the sewers, cackling, pushing, fighting, drinking, screwing in the mud. One woman planted explosives around the unsubmerged part of her house, "'tied herself through the weather vane "'and blew the top clean off. "'Roof became raft sailing into the sunset "'while she sang a throaty, powerful dirge. "'The judges did not explain. "'Or perhaps they let their instruments do the explaining. "'Word spread. "'A minor tourist industry sprung up with all the trappings. "'Hawkers on rafts and barges displayed their wares "'over bright blankets. "'Money no longer had any meaning, "'but trade lived on. "'Clothing, bead and shell jewelry,' Wood carvings in the shape of the cave's thick overhang or miniatures of the band members and their instruments could all be had in exchange for fresh fish, moonshine, or thick yeasty beer in old plastic bottles, or vice versa. In daylight, busking disciples played pale imitations of the master's art for whatever people were willing to give. Few talked to the judges themselves, though offerings of food and useful items were left regularly at the cave, which was not a cave at all, but more... Natural lean-to of stone, its odd history still told by the weathered plaque. Folks said the judges weren't human at all, but spirits sent to watch over them, give them hope, said their music kept the war away. Pilgrims arrived, first in a trickle, and then a torrent, bound in splint and bandage, helped in hobbling, and sat solemnly silent as the songs played on, night after night, while tears flowed down their emaciated cheeks. People claimed the music cured blindness, deafness, healed their festering wounds, lameness, paralysis, and leprosy. A man raved at the base of the rock how he'd been revived from the dead by a triumphant, dominant cadence. Another preached the revelation of the judges, the new horsemen, bringers of the Lord's grace and redemption. A third shouted that the judges were merely men, false idols, such as those that had brought about God's wrath in the first place. He commanded the people to go home, leave the city to its watery grave. Sometime later, he was found floating in the water like so much seaweed.
2: Such a holy place
0: to be.
3: Eventually, inevitably, the local warlord made his appearance, floating into the city on an enormous cruise ship, his capital and fortress. Black solar panels gleamed all over its surfaces. An article and an adjective had been added in splintered red paint to the towering name on its side. The Bloody Carnival. Its booming foghorn joined by men who jumped and whooped and howled their approach from the decks. From high on the prow of his many-story vessel, the warlord stood in feathers and face paint and biker leather over his bare, tattooed chest. An electric bulb at his feet lent dramatic uplighting. Chief man-killer claimed Mohegan ancestry— though there was no one left who could prove it. He said the white man had had their chance and destroyed the world. Now it was the natives' time again, and if you were brave, spiritually pure and very lucky, he might accept you into his tribe, rename you, train you in his ways, make you one of his braves, among the rulers and not the ruled. Chief Mankiller pointed, eyes gleaming, a horde of men in jeans and leather jackets, Feathered necklaces and heads shaven except for scalp-locks dyed a violent red, bearing rifles, pistols, and machetes debarked and streamed up West Rock. As a mass, they surrounded the judges and escorted them away, bearing their instruments after them, and once aboard, the bloody carnival pulled out and slowly, implacably departed. The shocked, wailing New Haveners soon heard the familiar, insistent rhythms wafting from the deck, just audible over the motors, and saw the silhouettes of jacketed men and women dancing. Many left after that. More followed as the first waves of disappointed pilgrims came and went. The loss of the band created a vacuum, soon filled with thievery, murder, and rape. Atop East Rock, on the other side of town, a kind of monastic order formed in a few shacks by the graffitied Soldiers' and Sailors' Monument. The angel atop the tower with its olive branch long since snapped off, hand holding empty air. The order took a vow of silence. To honor, they said. The sacrifice of the judges. But not everyone was silent. Musicians continued to play. Their best imitations of their heroes morphing into new forms, variations, improvisations, different styles, new instruments. In the end, it said, five of their number gathered at the cave among the rotting offerings. What their names were before didn't matter. They became Vincent, Warren, Berger, Rehnquist, and Roberts. The judges began to play. It took time, but the hawkers and food sellers and pilgrims returned. Some said the old judges were better. Others favored the new ones. Some said the originals had never left, that the coming of the bloody carnival had been one mass hallucination to test their faith. The band played on, unperturbed. Sometimes, it was true, one of the members grew tired or restless or fell in love and left. But now, there was always another to take his or her place. A new burger, a new renquist. Each judge an archetype, a mask in an unending commedia dell'arte, waiting for a new interpretation. They say, the music continues there still.
0: Eric Rosenfield's fiction has been published in Kaleidotrope, Lore, Lakeside Circus, and 365 Tomorrows. His nonfiction has been anthologized in the Modern Library Anthology of New York Diaries and published in io9, the New Haven Review, the Comics Journal, and LitKicks.com, among other venues. He currently works as the CTO of the serialized fiction service, Cereal Box.
3: Paul Carl is an actor living and working in New York City. He loves cats and Star Trek. Find him at www.mr.com. P-A-U-L-K-A-R-L-E dot com. Paulcarl This episode of the KaleidaCast Season 2 was brought to you by our Kickstarter supporters, Sandy Dietrich, Kevin Oakes, and Carl at studiomercenary.com. mercenary.com.
1: The Owl of Anatolia by S.A. Chakraborty. The boy was staring again. He peered over the back of one of the bus's fraying seats, his dark eyes tracking the movement of my pocket watch as I flicked it open. My fiancé Emel, left behind in Istanbul, smiled back from a small photograph tucked inside the watch's face. I pushed away a stab of homesickness. Would you like to see it? I asked, forcing some cheer into my voice as I met the boy's curious gaze. Nothing. I tried again. Do you speak Turkish? His face stayed blank, and I sighed. Annoyed, but not surprised, like the rest of the passengers on the bus, the boy was a Kurd, and his people were proving to be rather resistant to the government's attempt to replace their language with Turkish. But since dispelling such resistance was one of the reasons I had been sent to this backwards corner of eastern Anatolia, I held out the watch with a broad smile, my intentions clear. Take it. His face lit up. He turned to the man half-asleep next to him and tugged on his sleeve. Baba? His father. Our languages had that much in familiar, snorted awake. Though the man looked about my age, our appearances couldn't have been more dissimilar. He was dressed in a traditional vest and homespun shirt, a checkered scarf wrapped tight around his head, while my western suit and fedora, fashionable in Istanbul, all but shouted my affiliation with the government. He glanced at me and then at the watch. The metal glittered in the dusty sunlight. Something hard settled in his face. With a curt command in Kurdish, he pulled the boy to his feet and into the aisle. They settled down several rows away, the man wrapping a protective arm around his son. I leaned back in my own seat, heat rising in my cheeks. I glanced around, but the rest of the passengers were either feigning sleep or ignoring the exchange with the same dutiful effort they'd put into accidentally spilling hot tea on my lap as we waited for the bus, and tripping me as I made my way down the aisle. I hope my patients aren't this difficult. I eyed the worn envelope nestled in the bag at my feet, half-hidden by the newspaper screaming its warning of Hitler and his warring neighbors. I knew the enclosed letter by heart, the words that praised me. Dr. Samel Dizir for volunteering my skills in the rural East, for aiding in the patriotic campaign to lift our backwards Kurdish brethren from sectarianism and superstition. No, not Kurdish. We were never to call them Kurds. Kurds didn't exist. The people around me were simply Eastern Turks. Though I was to live amongst them for two years, to assist in the birth of their babies and vaccinate their children, to set broken bones and ease the pains of their dying, I was never to call them Kurds. I was not even permitted to learn Kurdish before I left. My inquiries into doing so met with cold silence from my program director. The bus gave a jolt, pulling me from my thoughts as it shuddered to a stop with a muffled popping sound. I sighed. We'd broken down in similar fashion, barely twenty minutes out of Diyarbakir, and it took hours to get moving again. I rubbed my brow as the minutes ticked by fighting the urge to scream. Few of the passengers seemed to share my frustration— The old woman across from me pulled out a tin of some sort of stringy purple substance and began to eat. Its odor, calling to mind, rotting onions boiled in vinegar, hit me hard. My stomach turned. I tried the window, but it would open no more than a couple centimeters. I watched an hour tick by on my watch. A baby started to wail. The temperature climbed, and the crated chickens lashed to the roof kicked up a racket. Feathers drifted past my window. Something in me snapped. Snatching up my medical bag, I lurched to my feet and pushed past the ragged bundles littering the aisle to exit the bus. Once outside, I took a deep breath relishing the fresh air before turning to the driver. He idled near the front of the bus. Greasy smoke poured from its open hood. A cigarette dangled from his mouth. How far are we from Bulgut? I demanded. He shrugged. Maybe ten kilometers. I waited a moment, but he made no move towards the smoking engine, looking quite content to contemplate the rocky landscape. To hell with this. I opened my wallet and counted out double the amount the trip had originally cost. I handed him half the bills. You'll get the rest upon delivery of my things, and my supplies belong to the government, I warned. So don't even think about taking off with them. He hesitated, his dark eyes fixed on the bills. It's a bad road. It's a worse bus. He took a long drag on his cigarette and pursed his lips, but finally took the money. I started walking. I felt better as soon as the bus was out of sight. It was a beautiful day. Rocky hills rose in the distance against a pale cloudless sky, and scrubby patches of wild thyme and hardy crocuses littered the flat brown land. The few trees were stunted. Lonely things, their gnarled limbs covered in the pale green buds of early spring. I tried to put the Kurdish father's behavior out of my mind. I wasn't naive. I knew working here would be a challenge, but I'd adjust. Besides, once the clinic was up and running, I suspected most people would be so happy to see a real doctor that they wouldn't care that I was a Turk. As I walked, I pulled free one of the oranges my mother had insisted on packing. I peeled it, tossing the skin at a tall bush growing beside the road. Something moved in its branches. I stopped. A small owl with tawny wings nearly invisible against the desolate brown landscape stared back at me. I drew closer, and it skittered aside, bobbing its head in agitation. Its face was arresting, a heart-shaped white mask dominated by pupilless black eyes. I smiled, a little nostalgic. My grandmother had hated owls. She'd battled for years with the tiny barn owl that nested in our storeroom, constantly chasing it out with a broom. A deeply superstitious woman, she believed owls, along with a whole host of other innocuous things, to be bad omens. The owl ruffled its feathers. It glared at me and then suddenly screeched, a sound that set the very hairs on the back of my neck upright. It burst from the bush with a single flap of its wings. I cried out and ducked as it soared past, heading towards the distant hills. Maybe my grandmother had a point. I turned back towards the road. I froze. A solitary man in local dress stood less than a hundred meters away. He carried nothing and was watching me with undisguised interest. Of course he is. You're dressed like a foreigner and shrieking over a bird. Ignoring the man, I adjusted the strap on my bag and turned away. I kept walking. The gentle breeze was gone, and I began to sweat. My carefully starched shirt sticking to my back. The black suit jacket was oppressive under the hot sun, constricting. I was suddenly conscious of my heartbeat, the thud of blood through my body, the only noise besides the steady drone of insects. A second man appeared from the rocks in front of me. He was dressed similarly to the other, his vest stained and torn. My throat caught as I noticed the knife in his hands glittering in the bright sunlight. I stopped, raising my hands in some useless gesture of defense half-remembered from a schoolyard fight. The first man was closer now. They fenced me in. Please, my voice cracked. The second man moved closer, and I panicked. Abandoning the road, I ran, stumbling through the scrubby bushes. My left foot slipped on a bit of loose gravel and I fell, cutting my hands on the rocks as I scrambled up and away. I gasped for air, but my pursuers were silent, clearly, practice hunters of foolish travelers. It didn't take long for them to catch up. The first man grabbed my bag, and though I was terrified, the attempt enraged me. The bag, was a graduation gift from my mother and had cost her at least a month's salary. I wasn't letting it go without a fight. I seized one of the handles and wrenched it back. The handsome leather tore at the seams and my prized instruments, well-oiled rubber cuffs, a steel reflex hammer and a new stethoscope landed in the dust, pouches of alcohol wipes falling like confetti. Distracted by the bag's fate, I barely noticed the sharp thrust in my side until the knife was drawn away red with blood. The other man struck, a heavy blow to the back of my head, sudden lightness and white stars, and I fell as if my legs had been cut out from beneath me. Another blow, a third, blood pooled beneath my body, sticky hot, the metallic tang, souring the air as they settled to their work pulling off my shoes and rustling through my pockets strangely I couldn't close my eyes which is how I saw the owl drift through the air to settle in a nearby tree it stalked down one of the branches its head bobbing in that unnatural manner its flat black eyes studied my own Although conscious, I felt curiously detached from the assault being done to my person. The blow to my head, I reasoned. That's why there was no pain as the blade bit through my thumb and sawed off the gold ring I wore in memory of my father. Why the stab wound in my side barely tingled as they yanked free my jacket. My senses returned as the sun sank away the sky turning crimson and indigo. The thieves were long gone. I twitched my fingers, blinked my eyes, and climbed to my feet. I screamed. My body, or the wreck that was my body, lay on the ground, clad only in bloody underclothes, one ruined hand, dark with dried blood and bony gristle, lay across my stomach and my head. Oh, God, my head. I'd been bludgeoned. The back of my head, a bloody, bruised, barely recognizable mass, a smashed orange lay in the dust. No, 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 no. I rushed to my side. I tried to touch my head, but my hand went right through it. My eyes, glassy and black, stared up at the darkening sky. I backed away, refusing to believe what was before me, for what exactly was before me? Myself, murdered and abandoned? It was impossible. I couldn't die. I was only twenty-five. I'd barely lived. Hell, I'd barely looked up from my studies since I was a teenager. "'I had a clinic to start, Kurds to civilize, "'a widowed mother to care for, "'and a woman waiting to be married. "'Dead? "'Absurd!' "'No. "'It was an out-of-body experience, "'like the Western articles I'd read, "'and dismissed as pseudoscience. "'Gravely injured, yes, but not dead. "'I just needed a doctor. "'I ran back to the road, but it was empty.' A lone ribbon of shining sand in the dark night. I raced back and forth for hours, but found not a single soul. And as the sky grew rosy with dawn, I realized I was deluding myself. Terrified of losing my body, I returned to the tree. I saw the owl before I saw myself still perched patiently in the tree, its black eyes watching me with the same blank expression with which it watched me die. For I had died. There was no denying the stiff, bluish thing my body had become. I sank to my feet, buried my head in my hands, and wept. I lay in the dust through the day and the following night, Keeping tortured vigil over my slain self, but my grief soon turned to incomprehension. If I wasn't alive, then what was I? Attempting to study whatever mass I inhabited now proved impossible. Every time I tried to examine my hands, it was like looking through a child's glass kaleidoscope, a whirl of silvery skin and broken fragments of light. But dead or not, I was a scientist. There had to be a way to puzzle this out. I stood. The ground beneath my feet stayed solid as I hopped from foot to foot, so gravity still applied. I could also see. Hoping my other senses worked, I took a delicate sniff. Though my corpse must have reeked, I only detected a slight mustiness to the air. I tried to stroke the tree, but it felt flat, my touch failing to register the textured bark. I pressed harder, and whatever was passing for my hand went right through the trunk. Movement caught my eye. The owl stared back, rustling its wings and shifting on its talons. It looked very comfortable, and I scowled. The damned creature. Its screech had probably alerted the thieves to my presence. I sat beside my body again, resisting the futile urge to swat away the flies, swarming my dead eyes. A line of ants marched across my bloody neck. It was difficult not to stare. Dead bodies don't disturb me. I've spent far too many hours in an anatomy lab, but at the sight of my corpse... "'my head destroyed, my life's blood spilled upon the dirt. "'I trembled because I'm still here. "'I sat back, a bit stunned at the implication. "'So there actually was some sort of afterlife. "'Of course, I had all the prayers and rules drilled into me as a child, "'but I hadn't given a thought to any of that in years.' No one in my generation did. Religion was a quaint cultural tradition at best, and at its worst an unforgiving and destructive orthodoxy that had held back our civilization for too long. But reduced to soul alone, where else could I turn? And so a little embarrassed, I stood and awkwardly faced the direction I hoped was Mecca. I hesitated, the innumerable drunken nights with my schoolmates and the many times I'd snuck into Emil's bed running through my mind. I hadn't been a very good Muslim. But I figured whatever awaited me was better than watching my body decompose with only an owl for company. Emotions came back quickly. I pressed my brow to the ground, whispering the words my mother taught me years ago I repeated them for hours, becoming anxious as the day lengthened and nothing happened. I prayed through the night, my rambling pleas growing more desperate if indeed anyone was listening. The owl never left. Another dawn lightened the horizon. It was difficult not to panic, to not give in to the sorrow threatening to overcome me. I turned away from my corpse and sat against the tree, trying to think. After my father died, my mother stayed inside mourning for forty days. When I asked why, she claimed that was how long the soul wandered the earth before being judged. Though I thought it was foolish at the time, her answer was a sudden bomb for my own anguished soul. Forty days. I glanced at the owl it still hadn't left and was looking at my corpse with undisguised interest you better not eat me I warned and there under the shade of the tree I waited I let my mind drift aware of little save the movement of the sun across the sky I tried not to think about my mother or Amel or what would happen next it was the only way I could stay sane Not that the owl gave me any peace. Deciding the tree was home, it spent the mornings cheerfully hooting to itself and skittering in the branches above my head. At night it hunted, bringing back unfortunate mice and small shrieking birds, their tiny bones piled around me. The fortieth day passed, and then the forty-first, the fiftieth, and nothing happened. When the shattered skull of a mouse fell through my lap on the 60th morning, I finally gave up and rose from the tree. My senses were dull, my soul disheartened. What was I doing wrong? Certainly there must be something after this, some place I was supposed to go. I stared across the rocky landscape. This was a violent land. If men were condemned to wander the land where they died, shouldn't these plains be crowded? Plague victims and smallpox sufferers moaning together while Macedonian warriors clashed against Ottoman janissaries, mothers lost in childbirth, old men with faulty hearts, children trampled by horses, foolish physicians slain by highwaymen. The ground should be thick with them, yet I was alone. Well, not entirely alone. The owl hooted in the branches above me while I waited for oblivion. Spring had swept across the land, and the creature lay hidden behind a screen of silvery green leaves. I frowned, remembering my grandmother's fear. This couldn't be normal behavior. What was keeping the owl here, the place where I'd lost everything? I paced. My body was now little more than parchment-like skin stretched over cracked bones. I grimaced, but then considered the sight. Did we not bury our dead for a reason, wrapping them in shrouds and interring them in the earth as quickly as possible?' Maybe as long as my bones lay lost, my soul would be trapped beside them. But I couldn't shoe away a fly, let alone dig a grave. I would need to attract human attention. It had to be possible. Folktales were full of ghosts. An insect might not respond to my touch, but surely a human could detect a lost fellow. I trekked back toward the road, trying to take some comfort in the beauty of late spring, the wildflowers crowding for space, the sweet trill of songbirds, but realizing how much time had passed since my death only made me feel worse. By now, my mother would have learned of my disappearance. She'd be terrified. I was a government worker in a notoriously treasonous region, There might even be an official investigation, not that any of the Kurds would assist. The bus passengers would deny seeing me, the driver forget where I disembarked, and as I thought of my mother's fear, I began to hate them. Reaching the road, I stared at the place I'd last been alive, the place where I'd first seen my murderers. Rage displaced my grief. I knew they'd never be caught, and the injustice of it all made me want to scream. I'd come to help them. I'd left my beautiful Istanbul and promising future to treat children whose parents would spit upon me. And for what? Patriotism? The betterment of humanity? Pride? It all seems so foolish now. Purple-green clouds blossomed across the darkening sky. The air was charged with ozone and electricity. A white bolt flashed and thunder rumbled in the hills. Around a distant bend in the road, a horse-drawn cart appeared. Led by an old man and loaded with hay, it rushed along, the driver likely hoping to beat the storm. I raced to meet him. "'You there!' "'I planted myself in front of the approaching cart. "'Please! My name is Samel Dirzil. I need your—' "'The cart roared through me. "'I smelled manure, tasted moldy hay, and then it was gone, "'tearing down the road in the opposite direction.' Wait! I cried. Wait! I raced after it, running headlong down the road as the distance between us increased. The rain came down fast, falling in thick sheets across the dry plains as the thunder grew louder and the lightning more insistent. Muddy water rose around my feet. I stilled. The water rushed past, spotty puddles swelled and converged, streams burst through ravines, a flash flood. No. My heart filled with prayers, I ran back the way I'd come. The storm was ending by the time I reached the tree, the rain little more than drizzle, but it didn't matter. My bones were gone. In denial, I searched the surrounding fields, but found nothing besides a fragment of skull and the rubber tubing of my stethoscope. My body was gone. My remains would never be found. I would never be buried. My mother would never know my fate. Anguished, I fell to my knees and cursed my murderers. I cursed God and the entire Kurdish people. I cursed my government for sending me here, my country for needing saving, and the schools that filled my heart with a hopeful future and useful skills for nothing. It was all for nothing. The owl returned, sweeping over me and settling amongst the tree's wet leaves. And then I suddenly knew my fate was its fault. My grandmother was right about them being omens. It had cursed me with a single screech, and I was going to kill it. Fully aware I'd lost my mind, I jumped to my feet and rushed after the bird— But though I'd been able to touch the tree before, my hands now touched nothing. I was nothing, and I finally and fully succumbed to my despair. Lost without the anchor of my body, I wandered the land. Days passed, or maybe months, it made little difference to the lost shade I'd become. I was dimly aware that the owl followed, or perhaps I followed it. It was obvious I'd been forgotten by God, or worse, damned to this existence. Then I saw the first one. It was a little girl from a rural village. The wails coming from her home drew me to its crumbling walls, speaking to a consciousness I'd been trying to bury. I stopped near a stick fence, unseen by its trio of skinny goats. The owl landed on the dusty ground, and she stepped through the closed door. She was pale and thin. Shadows darkened her eyes, and jaundice yellowed her cheeks. A long illness, not disguised by the cheery yellow sweater and flowery skirt she'd been wearing when she died because she had died. I knew it in an instant, and then she looked at me, saw me. She blinked, gave the smallest of uncertain smiles, and then turned to the owl. She grinned. With one brave hand, she stroked its head. She was gone in an instant, "'whisked away to a world that had denied me. "'Incredulous, I gaped and then lunged for the owl. "'My hands went through it, and it skittered back with a hoot, "'sounding almost disappointed. "'I followed it as it flew into a nearby tree. "'You!' I tried and failed to pick up a rock, "'aching to throw something at that damned bird. "'After all this time, you're the answer?' It silently picked at its wings. I fell to my knees. Please, I begged, just let this end. Let me leave this godforsaken place. It ignored me and would continue to ignore me as I pursued it relentlessly across the dry Anatolian plains. Others followed the girl, men and women, old and young, all drawn to the owl. Desperate to join them, I tried clutching the arms of the first few as they crossed, but their flesh, so reassuring solid when we first touched, simply vanished beneath my fingers." Most crossed right away, but some lingered and followed us as we traversed the land. Though we couldn't speak to one another, we could touch, and though I was damned and envious of those who could pass, I learned to lay a hand on their shoulders as they shook with grief, to turn their faces from their mourning families and wasted bodies and gently lead them to the owl. I learned to help. At least, I think I did. And so we journeyed, the dead and the owl through a country struggling to rise from the shadow of its empire. We never left Turkey. I wondered at that and then stopped. It seemed less and less important A coward, I avoided Istanbul until I was certain my mother was gone, fearing her grief would shatter what remained of my soul. Instead, I wandered the east, the land of my murderers, and a people I'd given up despising. The owl and I crossed lush forests and empty deserts, wandering through magnificent gorges and crowded village markets. My country went to war with itself, and I comforted the bewildered young men who died in droves, regardless of the colors on their blood-spattered uniforms. Time passed, and I watched the world change. Politicians schemed while people fought for, and sometimes even won, grand social reforms. I watched men and women in white coats, my former fellows, slice and probe, guide strange whirring machines and perform increasingly dazzling feats. But death came for them all eventually. And maybe that was the way it was supposed to be. A steady clearing of the world for the new Indeed, new ideas emerged, and I saw things of whose significance I could scarcely guess. Small buzzing devices that attached to the ear, and swift trains that snaked above the crowded streets and towering skyscrapers. A blue flag with a circle of yellow stars began appearing beneath the familiar red and white crescent. Farmland gave way to carefully planned towns, and villages were paved over as the cities exploded with young people and their ideas and inventions. The East broke away and then rejoined. A woman, her graying hair tucked under a white headscarf, became president. And the owl and I gathered the dead. One early evening found us, sitting quietly on the roof of what had once been a grain mill and now housed busy workers and white machines with bright pulsing lights. We were alone, our current crop of souls all departed. In the distant orange sky, a massive silver rocket, its fins proudly painted in the red and white of our flag, was being filled with people in strange suits and boxes of cargo. There was a thrill in the atmosphere, happy excitement even I could feel. The rocket closed up and began to rumble, the air filling with the sharp scent of metal and fire. The owl hooted softly, a curiously sad sound. And though I'd long ago stopped wondering about my fate, I knew it was time. I hesitated. For all my prayers, all my years of anguished waiting, I could not deny a brief and foolish desire to stay and watch what happened to that rocket. To witness the hopes of a nation, the dream of a better future, rise to the stars. I savored one last look. Good luck, I said softly. Then I turned and reached for the owl. Its feathers were soft and solid under my trembling fingers. The rocket took off, bursting through the atmosphere with an explosion that rocked the building. Then I was in the air as well. Rising swiftly above the tiled roof and the parched concrete, we flew faster and faster across the land that had been my home, the land I'd seen grow and change, break and heal, the land where the dust of my bones still surely resides. We raced through the warm air towards the horizon, the line that separated the blazing land from the darkening sky. But the horizon was brightening, no longer separating land and sky, but separating what was and what would be. Something different beckoned. Something wonderful.
0: That is another storm. S.A. Chakraborty is a speculative fiction writer and history buff from New York City. Her debut, The City of Brass, is out now with Harper Voyager and is the first book in the Devabad Trilogy, an epic fantasy set in the 18th century Middle East. When not reading, she enjoys hiking, knitting, and recreating unnecessarily complicated medieval meals for her family. You can find her online, most frequently, at Twitter, at S-C-H-A-K-R-A-B-S, where she likes to ramble about history, politics, and Islamic art. Lana Joffrey is an actor, spoken word performer, and writer who has worked throughout the U.S. and U.K., Theater work includes I Call My Brothers at the Gate, Muse of Fire and Sonnet Walks at the Globe, The Profane, Playwrights Horizons, Timon of Athens and Measure for Measure at the Factory, Iron Mistress at the Albany, That Day at Roundhouse, Rebecca Lenkowitz's The Commune at CSST, and The Two Noble Kinsmen at Instant Classic Company. Select film includes Druid Peak, Mad to be Normal, Fishing Naked, Awards include the IRNE Award, Ovation Award, New York Fringe Performance Award. Lana is a company member of the Factory and Barefoot Theater Company.
1: In this episode
3: of Clydecast Season 2 was brought to you by our Kickstarter supporters, Alex Kay, Sean Maddio, and Sean
2: Elliott. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Clyde P. Degamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Your editors and producers are Marcy Arlen, who's also our director, Bradley Robert Parks, Jessica Plumley, who provides additional vocals, Cameron Roberson, managing editor, and Sam Schreiber, our story runner. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act Two, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our intro was produced by sound engineer Matt Mozzarella. Additional audio engineering was provided by Atticus Ryan Garten. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. See our website for a full list of sounds from each episode. Special thanks go out to Marcus Song, Daniel Stalter, Margot Atwell at Kickstarter, C.S.E. Cooney, Carlos Hernandez, Fran Wilde, and Cat Valente. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution, Non Commercial, No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want. But don't sell it or change it and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and to find links to all our contributors.